0: Recovery Elevator, episode 198.
1: And then when I went to college, all that kind of went away. You know, I was no longer this big fish in a small pond. I was this little fish in a huge pond, and the pond was full of booze, it turned out.
0: Welcome to the Recovery Elevator podcast. My name is Paul Churchill. Thank you so much for joining us. On today's podcast, we've got Patrick. He's 37 years old. He's from Brooklyn, New York. He's been sober since August 23rd, 2008. And in this interview, we talk a little bit about cross addictions. And before we get any further, let's hear from my favorite resource in recovery, Cafe Re. The most important thing I've learned while doing the Recovery Elevator podcast is we can't do this alone. Believe me, I tried for over two years and it didn't work. So here's the good news. With Cafe RE, you get access to a confidential and unsearchable Facebook group, which is capped at 300 members to ensure intimacy. Then, you get access to the Cafe RE forum outside of Facebook, which means you don't need a Facebook account to be part of Cafe RE. Both are private and only members can see who is in the groups and what is said. In the forum and Facebook group, you get instant accountability and genuine connection with others who also wish to lead a life without alcohol. In Cafe RE, you'll find that being sober is a tremendous opportunity and not a sacrifice. For just $19 a month, you too can join the conversation. You can be paired with an accountability partner, attend educational online webinars, online meetups, attend in-person meetups and retreats, participate in book club, movie club, and more. Go to recoveryelevator.com and use the promo code opportunity to waive this setup fee. I hope to see you there. Hey guys, speaking of Café RE, we are going to be starting a new group on January 1st, 2019. And no, this is not a 30-day challenge. This is not a New Year's resolution. This is not a cleanse, a fad, etc. This is a new opportunity to live the life that you've always deserved. Again, we'll be opening up this group on January 1st of 2019. More details to come in the following episodes, but I'm excited to get this group going. It's going to be your third Café R group, and I cannot wait recovery elevator is coming to nashville tennessee february 22nd 23rd and 24th you can join us for the whole weekend or you can join us just for the seminar event saturday night the 23rd at 7 p.m to register and for more information go to recoveryelevator.com when i first launched the podcast in february of 2015 it was hard for me to find interviewees at this moment that's not the case So if you have submitted an email requesting to be on the podcast and you have not been chosen, don't take it personally. I get anywhere from five to 10 interview requests per week. And if you know the podcast, only one podcast episode comes out per week. But I want to say thank you so much for your submissions. And also, if I don't pick you, even though you send a long email with your story, I love reading all of the stories. Don't take it personally. It doesn't mean that your journey isn't worth or as good as somebody that was selected for the podcast. And I think it's cool that I need to cover this. There's so many people out there that want to talk about this, that want to share their experiences with no strings attached. They're not at the end selling something, et cetera. They just want to come on the podcast and share what's worked for them. It's awesome. Okay, let's get started. The topic for today's podcast episode is let it go. And to kick it off, here's a quote by Ann Landers. Some people believe holding on and hanging in there are signs of great strength. However, there are times when it takes much more strength to know when to let go and then to do it. I'm going to follow that quote up by asking you a question. Why don't zebras get ulcers? I'm going to follow that question up with another question. Why are human beings one of just a few species on the planet that do get ulcers? Well, here's why. We're the only species on the planet that continues to beat ourselves up time and time again for something that happened well in the past. This isn't normal. Human beings paying a thousand times for a mistake that we made years in the past? The rest of the living things on the planet pay for mistakes just once. But with humans, once we make a mistake, we are quick to judge and then to punish over and over and over. In fact, justice for human beings doesn't really exist because if it did, only one punishment would be required. You don't see a bird beating itself up repeatedly for not being the early bird who gets the worm. No, the bird just flaps its wings and uh, moves on and finds another worm. No ulcer needed. Hey Paul, when you say let it go, what does it mean? Oh, I'm glad you asked. This could be unhealthy attachments to ideas, places, events, current possessions, and what we think are minor irritations on the surface, conscious level, which are usually larger exasperations at the unconscious level. So that's the gamut of things that we need to let go. Another question, hey Paul, am I letting go of just past events here? Another great question. We are letting go of everything, past, present, and future projections. And when I say future projections, we have the ability to let go of who we think we need to be and who we think others need to be. This is powerful stuff that the alchemy of the brain has the capacity to pull off. Oh yeah, and I wouldn't be doing the title justice if I didn't talk about resentments in this episode. A resentment builds when we don't let stuff go. A resentment is the precursor to having something to let go. We don't build a resentment, then there isn't much to let go. So keep that in mind moving forward. I'd also be providing inadequacy to this episode if I failed to mention the word ego. For a more in-depth look at what the ego is and how it can prevent us from letting go, go back to episode 177 and then come back and join us. So before we began the Inca Trail, on the Recovery Elevator retreat which took place in Peru this past October, I told the group that it's time to let things go. And if you were on this trip, I was also planting a seed at the beginning of the 26 mile hike, not to hold a resentment towards Paul Churchill for getting you into this mess called the Inca trail. Let the past die and let the past die hard. Why? 99.9% of things that you feel happened to you didn't actually happen to you and they weren't your fault in the first place. So here's a tip to show you how to let things go. Imagine everyone is doing their best. The bank teller, the server at your favorite restaurant, and even your neighbor, Mike, who doesn't quite know where his yard ends and yours begins. Another key player in the game who is doing their best is you. If we imagine everyone is doing their best, including yourself, then you'll find that resentments build at a much slower pace. You might even find they stop developing completely. Do you find yourself holding on to something that happened in your childhood or something that your parents did a long time ago? How does it feel if I told you that your parents were simply doing their best? you should start to feel some weight lift off your shoulders. You might be saying to yourself, wow, Paul, this is groundbreaking stuff. But nope, I'm basically reformatting what others have already said, like Idina Menzel with her song Frozen. Let it go, let it go, can't hold back anymore, let it go. And if you have kids under the age of 13, then you're probably saying, damn it, Paul, thank you for putting this song back into my head. Even Akon and Wiz Khalifa have a song titled Let It Go. Many others who came before this podcast have also tapped into this magic of letting things go. So why is letting go so hard? Oddly enough, painful feelings can be comfortable, especially if they're all you know. Some people have trouble letting go of their pain or other unpleasant emotions about their past because they think those feelings are part of their identity. This is perhaps the hardest part about letting go. On the surface, or conscious level, we believe that all we want is for us to simply let the things go that are holding us back. But on the unconscious level, we know we might be letting part of ourselves go as well. And this is scary. Another reason why letting go is so hard is because letting go doesn't always look pretty. Sure, letting go can be walking outside, looking at the sunset, shrugging your shoulders and saying to yourself, you know what, I'm over it. I'm not going to worry about that anymore. Other times, this letting go can take the form of a release of negative emotions, a purge of negative energy in the form of tears and yelling and beating your fists into the ground. This process can be uncomfortable, but it needs to happen. Your body also wants to let go of some of this past negative energy. Listen to the body and let it happen. Lean into those negative feelings, feel it, let it go. What happens when we don't let things go? Well, a lot of things, including it can make recovery much harder than it needs to be. When we don't let things go, And this builds up over a prolonged period of time then the body and mind are constantly being overburdened probably the biggest tax of being overburdened is we are rarely in the present moment in addition this can result in a relapse aka whoopsie-daisy and the physical body can reach a tipping point as well and start showing signs of inflammation autoimmune disorders and even cancer basically learn forgiveness drop the resentments like your life depends on it because if we let these resentments past arguments etc build without letting it go it eventually will kill us what happens when we let everything go when all resentments have been dissolved how will i know when this happens well you'll know because you'll begin asking yourself a new set of questions one day you'll wake up and say what's that feeling in my chest is that my heart opening Is that, uh, what is that called? Peace inner? No, 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 no. It's inner peace. So once we have this inner peace, which we will get glimpses of at the start, and then it will build, which this process is irreversible, we're going to start to notice things, things that we are thankful for. And wow, this is a great segue in episode 199. And wow, I just realized this is a great segue into episode 199. It's not quite like a to-be-continued type thing, but 199 is going to piggyback just perfectly off this. But till then, enough out of me. Now let's hear from Patrick. Patrick, how are you?
1: I'm well, thanks. Thanks so much, Paul. Appreciate you having me on today.
0: Yeah, Patrick, great to have you here. And let's get right into this. How long have you been sober?
1: Uh, I just celebrated 10 years in August. So I'm 10 years and two months. I wish I had my app up. I could tell you how many hours it's (laughs) been.
0: You mentioned August 23rd, 2008 was your last drink, right? Yeah. Yep. Wow. That is incredible. Nice job, Patrick. I'm excited to learn more about you, hear more about your story. But before we get any further, give listeners a little background about yourself, maybe where you're from, what you do for a living, how old are you, do you have a family? And most importantly, Patrick, what do you like to do for fun?
1: Oh, cool. Uh, Yeah, uh, I'm a 37-year-old guy. I'm married, no kids yet. I live in Brooklyn, New York, but I'm from the Hudson Valley of New York, which is about, I think, 75 or 80 miles north of New York City. I am a comedian, and I do some recovery coaching, and I do some video editing for uh, extra cash. And for fun, oh man, that's a hard question because comedy takes up all of my time. I'm out doing shows every night. So fun is just sort of like squeezing in a, a good good meal in between shows or visiting friends. I like to snowboard in the winter time. I really like rollerblading. I keep telling my therapist my therapist has actually been encouraging me to do things that are just fun and don't have any kind of end game involved. And I keep returning to hiking and rollerblading as things that I'm I've been dying to get out and do again but my schedule is not friendly to that. I'm writing this down. Go have fun.
0: <laughs> and Patrick, do you think rollerblades are making a comeback? I just got back from the recovery elevator, uh, annual retreat. We're in Peru in the main plaza. You know, there's oh, like wow. colonial stones on the ground, cathedrals built in the 1500s. And there's like 30 kids, t- teenagers, young adults, cruising around in fruit boots slash rollerblades.
1: huh. yeah. Uh, I don't know if they're making a comeback, but when I was a teenager, I loved them. Uh, you know, of course, there's some associated shame with that, but uh, it's great exercise. And, you know, I played street hockey also, and I just love I love getting around uh, on them. It's, it's a lot of fun, but, yeah, it doesn't make a lot of logistical sense in the city because then you've got to, like, carry around skates all day if you use them. But yeah, I don't know much about the comeback, but I I think they're amazing. And uh, I also do know that they get a lot of criticism. So, but yeah.
0: Yeah, it's about this time of year when I start thinking about my 2019 goals. And I'm pretty sure a line item on that is going to be more time with rollerblades on my feet.
1: I think that's great. Uh, Let's let's become accountability partners on this and i'll check in on you absolutely
0: i see a youtube channel we could like make ramps and stuff (laughs) and skate backward in between cones and you know maybe shoot some roller hockey like some tennis balls at uh you know goals on walls and stuff like that
1: yeah, I mean, they say any, you know, you can have a life beyond your wildest dreams and sobriety, so uh, this, this can be a part of it, Paul.
0: <laughs> I'm excited. And Patrick, give listeners a little background about your drinking, maybe when it started, when it became a problem, how much did you drink, did you ever try to moderate it, and uh, did you have a rock-bottom moment? Let's hear it.
1: Yeah, sure. So I did not start drinking until my freshman semester of college because I grew up knowing that alcoholism ran in my family so uh, my brother and I kind of had this pact like where we decided we were just not gonna or we, we weren't gonna repeat that pattern and we you know he was an athlete in high school and I was just very much a social guy I was friends with everybody I was you know I was like my school's prom king and homecoming king I was really involved with everything uh, they voted me best personality in the yearbook uh, I make a joke on stage where I mention those things and then I say that I was homeschooled <laughs> uh, but I actually was, uh, in public school, but I was just, I, I, things came easy to me when it came to socializing. So I just didn't drink. And I think my first drug of choice was just attention and, uh, popularity. So I, I just didn't need it. And then when I went to college, all that kind of went away. You know, I was no longer this big fish in a small pond. I was this little fish in a huge pond and the pond was full of booze. It turned out. So, everybody at college was drinking, and I figured, well, I guess I'll try it. And I loved it immediately. I felt funnier than ever. I felt confident. I didn't have any luck with any girls up until that point. That changed pretty quickly with drinking. So, I was 18 years old, a freshman in college, and I fell in love with beer pretty quickly. Uh, That summer, I stayed at college and I became a pretty much a daily drinker because I was a student leader on campus. I was a part of our orientation program. So I had this dorm room and, you know, not a whole lot to do all summer. So I just uh, did a lot of partying. And yeah, it became, I would say, problematic within that first year because there was a student health counselor I was working with on the orientation program and when I was a sophomore and school was back in session, she called me into her office and she said, you know, I keep hearing these stories about you when you you drink. And, and I heard about the naked thing at the party this summer. So that's who I was. When I got drunk, I would take off clothes and run around and climb buildings. So I was kind of unpredictable when I drank. And within a year, I was getting, uh, you know, a warning from a professional on campus that maybe I was... She She said... Uh, i'm not going to say you're an alcoholic but you might by what i'm hearing about you you could be an alcohol abuser so i kept drinking for another 8 years thinking well i'm not an alcoholic yet <laughs> so so yeah it was it was i was i guess a party animal drinker at first and you hear people talk a lot about how first my drinking was fun then it was fun and consequences and then it was just consequences mm, and that's like very that. yeah and that's very similar To my trajectory. I I would say, you know, years one to three were fun with some consequences. Uh, There was, you know, there were some arrests and things like that for just crazy behavior on campus. It's actually interesting. The more I write about this stuff in my material, the more I remember. uh, I don't know if you ever heard John Larroquette. I think he said, I think he, he, he tweeted this once. So I don't know if he invented this saying, but uh, the longer I'm sober, the drunker I was. Meaning, mm-hmm. the more we, the more we like learn about ourselves, and we look back on our story. And we, you know, if you're working the steps or however you work through your experiences, sometimes you see, oh my God, like this thing I thought was just like a minor blip actually says a lot about my alcoholism or mental illness or whatever was going on. So anyway, the more I write about the, these things that happened to me I realized oh those are real consequences like I lost I ended up losing that orientation job because of one of the arrests that I had and the other day I was writing about it just sort of journaling about it and I I became very sad in a way that I don't think I was sad about it at the time at the time I think I was very defensive and kind of like well who gives a shit I'm I'm a rock star on this campus I should be able to do whatever I want I can't believe they would fire me. I'm 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 the best orientation leader on, you know, all those kinds of entitlement yeah. feelings. But now I'm like, that was a job I really loved, and I lost it because I deserved to lose it. I was I was a disrespectful person. I was entitled, and they should have fired me. And I just I just got really kind of sad about it. So then after college, I worked in I, I was a TV producer for about uh, 13 years after school, and that is a very work hard, play hard environment. And yeah, so from about 2003 to 2008, it was just a lot of a lot of work hard, play hard, things I'm really proud of in my career. You know, I got to work on a lot of projects that I, I to this day, I'm very proud of. I, I kind of had this reputation as a guy that was fun to bring on the road because I knew how to party. So I never... Like I never did lose a job in my real career because of my drinking and in fact, my drinking may have enhanced my career trajectory. I'm not sure if that's still something I need to look closer at. And in the midst of that, there were uh, girlfriends, you know, there's a lot of uh, relationships that were probably inappropriate. I dated a lot of people at work and uh, yeah, in, in 2007, 2008, I was in a very intense relationship that started at work, got very serious. And uh, that's where my drinking kind of got really ugly. And uh, unfortunately, uh, things did not go well in the relationship, mostly directly related to my drinking. And yeah, that's, uh, thank God I quit. I was a daily drinker by the end, but still kind of maintaining uh, appearances. You know, like I, I still had a cool job. I was making pretty good money for for the age i was at mm-hmm. and
0: uh yeah i think i can't
1: i can't tell if i answered all the questions that you asked in there but no you're doing great. generally the and,
0: and you know yeah. you mentioned you, there's a professional at your college who sat you down eight years before you decided to quit drinking the red flag the writing was on the wall clearly at that moment, but you mentioned yeah. at the end before you quit, were there any other red flags? And you know what finally pushed you off the edge to quit drinking? Did you try to moderate first, yeah. or was just like, you know what, my name is Patrick, and I'm freaking done with this shit? How did that go? What did that look like? Yeah,
1: yeah. So it, it's interesting. There, there were lots of red flags throughout. You know, the, lots of people in my life. Well, a handful of people. Usually, girlfriends would say would would always it would at some point they would bring it up like hey could you could you not drink so much tonight or you might have a problem whatever that came in different shapes and sizes but my brother he he started drinking at the same time as me he he's 3 years older than me he's in the marine he was in the marines and he was in Italy and we i've you know working on again i write about this stuff so much so i was doing all these like all this research in my email inbox and outbox and i found these emails between him and i from when he was in his first few months of drinking, I was in my first few months of drinking and he wrote me one that said, things have been getting crazy. I got so angry the other night. I, I really don't want to drink like this anymore. I think I'm going to stop heavily drinking. And then me responding to that email saying, yeah, I, I keep doing this, this, and this, and I keep losing trust with people who I'm friends with. I I, I think I'm done also. So it's funny that I went back and found these red flags. Anyway, eventually he, he became, he's, he, he did come home from the military and he was living in our hometown and uh, he was drinking a lot and his consequences involved, uh, I think three DUIs that involved crashes and he ended up in the hospital for one of them. And this is about 2005, about three years before I quit. And, uh, well, it was, yeah, it was February 2005. And I, I, I never did go visit him in the hospital, hospital, but I did call him to say, Hey, I know you, because at that point he was court ordered to go to meetings and, and quit drinking. Sure. And I, I told him, Hey, I'll do it with you. I know I, I probably should stop too. And, uh, I think I was just saying whatever I could to make him feel better on the phone or something. But it was, it felt like one of those first, admissions where it's like, I can't believe this is coming out of my mouth. That can't be true. Uh, pretend like I never said that. And then I just kept drinking for three more years anyway. So that was one. And then, uh, and yeah, in the last couple of years, I, 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 I found a drinking buddy at work who was a married woman with a family. And, you know, it it really was just like we would go out and drink longer and harder than all of our other coworkers, and it it was a friendly relationship, nothing beyond that. But there were nights where I was in her kitchen at five in the morning, you know, sipping a bottle of tequila with her, having these deep emotional, uh, philosophical conversations that felt so, you know, larger than life, but really it was just two drunks, like justifying still being up at that hour when we had to be at work and, you know, five hours from then. And I can remember at one point uh, actually becoming emotional and crying to her and saying like, I know I have to stop, I know I'm an alcoholic, uh, I know I'm drinking the same way uh, other people in my family did like and and just that weird thing of like knowing this is a huge problem that's going to have to be dealt with, but also knowing it's the only thing that gives relief from that problem or it feels like it's the only thing at the time, and the crying stuff kept happening there were there were like a few other incidences that I can think of where the drunk guy getting inappropriately emotional when everybody else is just trying to have a good time.
0: So, and Patrick, I, me, I would, yeah,
1: those,
0: yeah. yeah. And l- let me ask you a question before you drank the time leading up to your sobriety date, what do you think you were getting from alcohol? For example, for me, I got a big hug from alcohol way up until the end until it mm. stopped working. Then it became physically addicted to it and it, uh, just, you know, queued dumpster fire. But what do you think you were getting yeah. from alcohol? Why do you think you drank?
1: Yeah, so I think I got a shot of it was like this confidence and this bulletproof rock star feeling that I think I got when I was a teenager in high school before I ever drank, where I felt, oh, I I feel like people like me and people laugh at me because I'm funny and uh, I'm friends with everybody. And I was like a positive, it was a positive influence in my, in my, amongst my friends, you know, like, of course, I was sort of like a, I could be a punk and kind of obnoxious and whatever, but generally I was a good kid who, you know, even teachers and administrators I was friendly with. And I always, that always filled me up with very positive feelings to just kind of be in a community, be well-known and well-liked. That just always felt good. And when I didn't get that in college immediately, the way I, I, you know, everything else had so easily fallen into my lap. I think when I discovered that alcohol can make me feel that way, artificially or um, with you know whatever it's like steroids for awkward situations or something it, it just made me feel connected yeah I think that's what I always wanted was just connection you know it always didn't make me feel funnier or more relaxed more easily so yeah I think it I just wanted to feel that instant instant connection and kind of carefree Type
0: of thing. Yeah, I love the answer to that question. And then it brings us to the point where deep down at the heart and soul level, you're starting to have these emotional outbreaks, whether it's 5 a.m. in a kitchen with a married woman who has a family, platonic, like you mentioned, but your body is starting to say, look, something's not right here what finally made yeah. you to make that decision to go into sobriety did you half ass it at first and say all right i'm only drinking beer i'm only doing this putting your rules yeah. in place yeah walk us through that process and what that look like
1: yeah yeah so i that relation so i was in a relationship for the last 2 years of my drinking well a year and a half it, basically i met a woman at work we fell quickly in love she's she's an you know this is the person i credit you know for saving my life essentially I haven't talked to her since I made my amends to her probably seven years ago now. But I thought I was going to marry this girl. Things moved very quickly. I met her in March 07. We moved in together March 08. And then I got sober August 08. And then the relationship didn't work out. And I moved out in March 09. So just I just say all that for some context. But I really thought we were going to be... You know, this was going to be my life. I had found my person. And I just repeatedly hurt her with my behavior. Things things would just go off the rails when we were out together or if I went out separately. You know, I was playing in bands at the time. And it was just this constant roller coaster of drama of, you know, me doing something insane and then trying to put it all back together, saying whatever it took to put it all together. Uh, her staying upset and then me drinking to get over the feelings of guilt and shame or resentment toward her. And it was, it turned into her constantly telling me to stop drinking and go to therapy, me promising her I would, and then not actually following through. So I started trying to regulate by quitting on my own and taking breaks. I would sometimes go for a handful of days and then, you know, not be able to keep going. I did do the thing where I I was typically only a beer drinker anyway, but I do remember one uh, vacation with a bunch of buddies where, you know, I I said to all them, I was like, I'm only drinking beer on this trip because I want to be able to stay drunk the whole time and not get too crazy. (laughs) It's just insane to think about putting that much thought into something like that. So anyway, the the relationship it, it just got so horrible. You know, we we went on this vacation to Italy, and I I put her. You know, we, it was a nine day trip, and on the second night we were. You know, I wanted to drink with the locals. I wanted to experience real Venice. You know, I wanted to know what a Venice dive bar was like. You Swimming, know, I wanted to be yeah, in that. swim seat. in the
0: canals and things like that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, and she felt unsafe. You know, I was I was really. Pretty rip-roaring drunk and, you know, really bro down with people we've never met before. And she felt unsafe and wanted to go home, and it turned into a fight and it got real ugly. And I woke up that next morning, and she was on the phone with the airline to fly back to the States alone without me. Huh. And I, I just knew, you know, I begged her to stay. I admitted. I said, I know I'm an alcoholic. I know I have to stop. I know I cannot control what happens when I drink. I, it, I really do want to stop now. This is finally it. I promised, You know, made a thousand promises. She did stay. We did get through the next nine days, and then uh, a few days after we got back to New York, my buddy said, "Hey, we're going to the Met game. Do you want to come?" I said, "Yeah, of course." Go to the game, and I said, "By the way, guys, I'm I'm not drinking anymore." And uh, one of the guys said, "Well, you can have one," and I said, "Yeah, of course, I can have one." So he went off to buy a round and came back. And of course, you know, one buddy buys a round, everybody's got to buy a round. So, you know, the next six hours uh, became a blur. And we ended up partying in Manhattan, where I was ejected from the bar because I was, you know, dancing like a maniac falling repeatedly, flirting with every girl I could see find. And that morning, I staggered home at about five. And then when I finally woke up, she was she was just sort of staring at me, and she said, I just got off the phone with your brother. Uh, my brother was a couple years sober at that point, and she said he told me that I should kick you out if you don't stop drinking, and that was the morning of August 23rd, 2008. And so the Mets game and a horrible Midtown bar were my last drinks.
0: And so what was different, though, that morning on August 23rd? Because fear can get us sober. Yeah, I'm going to kick you out, but something changes at like the spiritual mm-hmm. heart and soul level. What was it like that morning when you yeah. woke up?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Well, the truth is I really was acting out of pure fear and kind of like, I don't know if you watch Ozark on Netflix oh, or yeah. even Breaking Bad. You know, like they so often you see these guys making these just split-second decisions for pure uh, self-preservation where they don't really know how the whole how whatever decision they're making in the moment will actually work out but they're like I know I need to just say this combination of words right now so I don't get shot in the face Mm -hmm. I think that's what I was doing I was just saying yes I I'm definitely done I swear I'll go to therapy on Monday and and I think that's about it I was I was I was saying yes to try to save the relationship and and it worked it worked for six months you know well probably a few months and then things got real funky around the house but you know, I did start going to therapy on that Monday or that next week, whatever it was. And my spiritual, like when I, so I quit for her essentially and the real turning point and the real surrender was, was when the relationship did not work out. And I, there was like a very clear moment where I knew, okay, I, I'm making a lot of money. I'm not spending all my money on booze anymore. I can afford my own place she won't be making me feel you know i at the time i felt she has taken away my identity she makes me feel like shit about all this even though i'm working so hard you know i was very much in a victimhood place which she doesn't deserve like i i my feelings about that have changed at this point very much so anyway i had this moment where i was like well i can just go be who i want to be if i want to go be a party boy again i can get my loft out in the cool part of brooklyn you know playing bands again I'm single party boy guy you know and I just knew or I can go check out meetings because at that point I wasn't doing meetings I was going to therapy once a week I was counting my sobriety by the week like I was pregnant or something and I I just had this I don't know this moment where I was like if I don't at least give these meetings a try because my therapist had been suggesting it since the first day we met he kept saying like you know you'll meet people just like you and cuz i i kind of had this prejudice toward the program you know my my dad went for a little bit when i was i can remember being young and seeing the big book around and and i just remember having this prejudice like well that didn't work for him and you know where i'm from i just pictured all these farmers like in a weird church basement and
0: farmers so the, anyway my the th- stereotypes th- of aa are, are just incredible by the way they're all different but, <laughs> yeah all right keep going yeah yeah farmers in a basement uh, with coffee and donuts <laughs> love it
1: right right
0: half wearing rollerblades but, sorry keep going <laughs>
1: yeah <laughs> uh that that would be a good format for a meeting it would really change the meaning of round robin you know? <laughs> um, so yeah so i i just uh i just you know, he, my therapist had been saying, just go, you'll meet other people in band. Cause I remember saying specifically, like, you know, I, I play in bands. I perform at bars. Like I promote parties. Like how am I, there's not people doing that. And he's like, dude, like, uh, you know, and he would name drop like celebrities that go to certain meetings in New York, which my therapist had questionable uh, methods, but he, you know, I, I ended up going and when i went i was at that point i was 6 months sober if i'm doing it myself in therapy and i immediately knew i belonged there i heard a, a woman qualify and she didn't look like me or uh, sound like me but her story was very similar and i related all over the place and i just knew i belonged there but i kept going for another six months until I got a year with this attitude of I'm just going to give this a year. I I, I might want to drink again. You know, like I, I, I still couldn't really picture a life without drinking because it was so ingrained in how I socialized and who I was and this image of this like cartoon character, kind of performer, uh, funny, weird guy. I just, you know, work hard, play hard. Like it was so a part of who I was that I just kind of thought, eventually I'm going to drink again, you
0: know? And Patrick, can Um, I, can I interrupt you for a second? I want to expand on what you just said, because it's completely normal to have those sentiments. Like I mentioned, I just got back from our annual retreat in Peru and there was a gal that had two years and she said something similar and she was kind of beating herself up about it. She's saying, you know, I'm not a hundred percent convinced that I want to live this life without alcohol. And if you're feeling that way, whether it's a month, two years, or whatnot, you just explained it at a year. It's totally normal. And and, and I don't want to bring like the, the cliche one day at a time in this, but it's a totally yeah. normal feeling to have. And then how did that switch yeah. for you from going, look, I'm the party guy, I'm a comedic, this is part of life, from actually making it be a part of life, sobriety.
1: Yeah, it it, it changed when at a year, I stopped doing the thing where I, uh, I would go to meetings and I would listen. I wouldn't open my mouth. I wouldn't raise my hand. I never counted days because by the time I was going to meetings, I was already six months in. I didn't meet anybody. I sat in the back. And the, in in Brooklyn, there are some meetings where there's you know 150 people who are very cool people. Like there were people that seemed to be from cut from the same cloth as me, but I was so shy. And I was so, you know, that's the thing is like, I'm weirdly uh, introverted and extroverted at the same time. And when I felt like a newcomer who was sort of like, um, observing this, like, cool thing that was already happening, I couldn't figure out how to get in. So I would just go and i would leave before, you know, somebody came up to me or whatever, I would just like, once the prayer was over, I would just like kind of head out and I was very lonely for that first year because of that. You know, I was broken up out of this relationship. I was living alone. I was going to these meetings but not not asserting myself at all. Uh I was taking a lot of lonely bike rides around New York City. And then finally I I got my year and I just knew like I remembered the deal I made with myself like I'll give this a year and then decide. And at that point I just knew I wanted what these other people had and I wanted to live a sober life or give it a deeper try. And I got a sponsor that day. And when I started working with a sponsor and he started introducing me to other guys and other people, and uh, he he was a really cool guy and I, I just admired him a lot. So the the short version is that I found, I found I got friends and I became a part of the community and that felt like the most, uh, it just felt very re- like realistic that oh I can just live in this community like I can get so much support from all these people that uh, there's no way it's impossible to to have a
0: fun full life without drinking. And Patrick, so, I gotta interrupt you one more yeah. time. You just wrapped the entire theme of all of 198 podcast episodes in a one nice little basket with a bow. You got to the point where you said, oh my gosh, I can have friends. I have a sponsor. There's a community. There's people cut from the same cloth. That's when the rubber hit the road for me too, Patrick. And I love seeing that with people. Again, I just saw it on the Peru trip where the light bulbs go off and they say, wait a second, I'm not alone. This doesn't have to suck. Yeah. And it can be a whole hell of a lot of fun. I love what you said there.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And it permeates your life eventually. You know, I just uh, had a weekend trip upstate with there were eight people in a house six of us were sober people the other two were you know i guess sober adjacent i would say they, they've they known us for years and years and you know they'll, they'll drink some wine they'll smoke a little weed but like they're just normal people you know and uh they really appreciate where the six of us are coming from and we just had this really sweet nice weekend and we all met our partners in the program and we've all been friends through the program for almost a decade now and it's just it's so a part of my life you know and uh it it it, it's it's crazy how it feels so profound at first and now when i look around at all the little nooks and crannies of my life and the good things that have happened over the last 10 years i can i can trace back exactly how it relates to the sober community
0: Now, let me ask you a question about cross addictions. When I hit about two and a half years of sobriety, I noticed uh, some other addictions, such as work, exercise, chewing tobacco, nicotine were popping up in my life. At some time in the last 10 years, did you notice the same? It is, did you become addicted to stand-up comedy, for example, something like that?
1: Yeah, yeah. You know, I was just saying to my wife the other day, I was like, I think I probably need to look out for workaholism issues. You know, like I... When I'm not getting what I want as quickly as I want, I can spin out on uh, worrying about the future, obsessing about the future. Uh, I'll go on binges where I'm doing like a ton of outreach into the all hours of the night, sending emails, send, you know, because I've got to be my own PR manager, my own manager, agent, whatever. And uh, sometimes I'll look at the bank account and think, oh, shit, I got I to gotta figure this out now when well, really i need to lean into faith and and uh lean into uh trusting uh, the 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 bigger purpose or the higher power or the universe or whatever but i i will kind of go into white knuckling workaholism mode so that's something i'm looking out for food is certainly a thing for me sugar i'm a i'm definitely i definitely eat in ways that i hope will change how i feel on the inside Uh, often right now it's in pretty good it's better than it was you know two I got married about a year almost two years ago now and the year leading up to my wedding I was totally out of control with ice cream I was eating a pint every single night by myself at the end of my nights coming home from performing and uh, it's it's better now but it's still like something I have to be vigilant about you know I started working with a new therapist three years ago. I'll I'll be, I don't know, I guess I'll be very honest and just talk about it briefly, but there's some sex addiction issues around porn and things like that that we started exploring and talking about and that doing work in that department of my life has changed things in pretty major ways that are very good for me and my relationship. So yeah, I, I I think I'm a person that since I was a kid wanted to change how I feel on the outside or on the inside by using things on the outside. So I, I have a feeling that will be something to keep an eye on for the rest of my life.
0: Yeah, Patrick, I ask that question because and you said the word vigilant is we need to be aware. There's no heal all cure all instantly. It's not like when we quit drinking, it's a panacea. Everything is instantly fixed. But like you just said, the word vigilant. We need to be aware of that that's happening. It happened to me. And I know I see it in the private groups cafe. area. it happens to other people as well. We can't beat ourselves up. It's just good to be aware of. And you got 10 years of sobriety. Like I'm, I'm loving this interview and I'm, I'm curious to hear your answers. Cause you're, you're, you're going down the path that I've yet to go down and I'll be blessed if I can also hit 10 years. And, uh, let me ask a question before we get to the project that you're yeah. working on, which is so cool. I can't wait to share it with, with, with the audiences. Is there something that you would have done differently when getting sober?
1: I would have went to meetings immediately. I I really think if I if I just followed like you you know, we I, I don't know if you've heard this around whatever groups you go to, but the, the concept of next right action, just like what's the next what's the next right step in the in my best direction, you know, like, let me just say yes to that, you know, and uh, I wish there were so many of those, even in the thick of my drinking, you know, that it was like, okay, the next right action here is to just like not not drink anymore, and then what's the next one after that, you know, and to be in that headspace of being willing to just follow somebody else suggesting a next right action, it took so long to get there, but I, when I finally did, everything changed, and I just wish when my therapist said, hey, you should check out this specific meeting. Uh, That's where all the cool New York City, you know, hipsters and actors and models go. You'll like it there. I wish I would have just went. Perhaps, you know, I think everything happens the way it's supposed to happen. But I think um, therapy helped me very much. But I didn't hear the word resentment in the way we use it until I started going to meetings. And I didn't know I was collecting all these really funky, intense resentments toward my girlfriend at the time who hmm. saved my life by convincing me to quit drinking. I didn't realize I was starting to hate her on a subconscious level for stealing my identity. And if I was going to meetings to just say that kind of shit out loud, I pro- my life would probably be very different right now, or it could be. I don't know. Um, you know, I'm so I'm so grateful for what my life is, but... Uh, there was, you know, that was a very painful time in my life when I was, I was months sober and the relationship started to just continue to nosedive, even though I was doing really hard work by staying sober. So yeah,
0: I guess that's the big one. Patrick, I remember when I was like seven years old and I was standing on the high dive at the community pool. And when I finally jumped off, it was like, that was it. I wish I'd done that a long yeah. time ago. And I see it in the in oh, the cafe RE groups. It's like, "Hey guys, I went to my first AA meeting today and I didn't die." <laughs> yeah. Same thing, like it's it's just go. It's it's not that big of a deal. Your life can actually yeah. depend on it. Um and Patrick, I want to talk yeah. about this really cool project you have called Punchline Drunk. It's about spreading awareness to college campuses about that alcohol is just shit. Tell us more about that. <laughs>
1: Yeah, so I, I've been doing this, I, I guess you'd call it a one-man show about my uh, about my drinking career and how it started, how it ended, and what makes me an alcoholic and an addict. And it's put together in a way that is uh, sort of half stand-up, half TED Talk, called a TED Talk of Shame. Um, <laughs> and it's a educational presentation that I can put on for college students uh, while they are kind of figuring out their own relationship to alcohol, um, not to not to di- it's not to diagnose anybody. It's more uh, me sharing what makes me an addict, so that they can have a conversation about where their where their use puts them. So yeah, it's been really fun. Uh, it's 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 a funny show, but it's kind of deep. There there's some emotional parts. And, you know, I'm really proud of it and just kind of looking to spread the word about it. So I appreciate you you bringing it up and uh, letting me talk about it a little bit.
0: Yeah. And how can people find the trailer to this? Uh, Instagram, you said?
1: Yeah. So the trailer's on YouTube. If you just search Punchline Drunk, uh, it should come up in my name, Patrick Holbert, on YouTube or on my website, PatrickHolbert.com. I'm in the middle of putting up a page specific to it that show on my site uh and uh it's on my agent's website also but yeah and then on instagram i, I post flyers and things like that for upcoming shows and that i'm on instagram as the whole bear report uh, so yeah i would love if people checked it out
0: i love it how you're bringing comedy into sobriety because you have to laugh to get sober oh and my to God, stay sober yeah. that just is a requirement And Patrick, we have reached rule number 62, 62 and a half. I love it. We have reached the rapid fire round. If you can answer these questions in 30 to 60 seconds, that would be great. Are you ready? Yes, sir. Number one, worst memory from drinking Patrick. Ready, go.
1: Oh, Italy for sure. I I really became a monster during that uh, episode.
0: And we've all heard of the aha moment. When was your oh shit moment indicating that the gig was up?
1: I, you know, I was moving out of an apartment in Astoria. This is again, like a few years before I quit. And I was uh, drinking and crying on the phone to my brother because nobody in that neighborhood or my building or my roommates at the time, everyone was happy that I was leaving.
0: Mm. And what's your plan in sobriety moving forward?
1: Staying true to um, this stuff in my comedy. I don't know why it's, such a wellspring of inspiration for me, but just being honest and sharing vulnerably with audiences in a funny way.
0: Great plan. You, you, you kind of left out the, uh, the rollerblading accountability partner thing.
1: <laughs> yes. Yeah. I'll be, uh, rolling, rolling around, uh, the, the Western hemisphere with Paul from recovery <laughs> elevator.
0: And what's your favorite resource in sobriety, Patrick?
1: Uh this is cliche but I got to say the phone man just calling calling other buddies uh picking up calls from other people being available and and yeah using using the telephone to call other people who are uh have more time or less time or whatever just using the phone to to get real about whatever's going on with you no matter how big or small that could be.
0: And in regards to sobriety what's the best advice you've ever received?
1: Uh, I have I've always had issues with FOMO you know the fear of missing out and I can remember my first sponsor saying you know if there are two things going on and you're not sure which to go to uh, just stick with your first commitment whatever the first thing you said yes I'll be there for that I can do that job whatever the situation is stick with the thing you first committed to and don't even think about the other thing uh, because then you're showing up for something you're showing up with integrity. You're doing what you said you would do. You don't have to overthink it past that. And that that freed up a lot of brain space for a people pleaser like me.
0: And what parting piece of guidance can you give the listeners?
1: Hmm. Just hang in there. You know, like this is such a marathon. It's it's it there's so much discomfort and everything like this too shall pass, you know, like if if you're very uncomfortable with something right now and you think um, a pint of ice cream, or a hit of weed, or a stiff drink will change it. Yes, yeah, sure, those things might change it in the short term, but you're running a marathon, so try to get to bed that night without doing that thing and see how you feel tomorrow. So, yeah, if you're if you're going through hell, just keep going, as Winston Churchill said.
0: <laughs> and before we depart, Patrick, give listeners your own customized "You Might Be an Alcoholic" gift line.
1: Oh, there's this great joke that I remember reading uh, in a magazine. It was like a a quoted joke from a stand-up comedian. I wish I could give him credit, uh, but I forget who it was, but I clipped it out. It's in the notebook here somewhere. And it said something like, I was Googling whether I was an alcoholic, and it said the first sign of alcoholism is Googling signs of alcoholism. So, you know, you might be an alcoholic if it's something you think about, you obsess about you worry about, you Google about, uh, normal drinkers, people with normal relationships to substances don't really think about it a whole lot. So, you know, if you're doing sober October for the 10th year in a row and <laughs> you rarely get through a few days of it, like there you're might probably an alcoholic. Deeper. Yeah. Yeah.
0: It can yeah. be that simple. And, and Patrick thoroughly enjoyed this. Thank you so much. I love the project you're doing with universities. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Paul. I really appreciate it, man. Congratulations to Sebastian all the way out in the Netherlands for hitting two weeks. Thanks for listening. Thanks for the email. Keep on moving forward. And before we close, I want to talk to you about an article that was sent my way from the HollywoodUnlocked.com titled, Being Elementary School Teacher Fired for Having Wine in the Classroom. 43-year-old Shannon R. Barron was an employee at the Buckeye Elementary School. We're not even going to read the rest of this article. What we're going to do is say, Shannon, R. Barron, we love you. You got fired for having wine in your classroom and being tipsy on the job. The internet has shared their opinions. We're going to share our love with you right now. And Shannon, if you want a spot in Cafe R we're more than happy to have you. The majority of us have been through something similar, but the majority of us have not had an article go viral on the internet. So I'm sorry you're having to go through this. Alcoholism, addiction is a disease that doesn't need to be gossiped about. So we're all sending you love. And again, if you wanna move forward, come find us. We're all in this together. We took the elevator down. We gotta take the stairs back up. We can do this.